When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V, who's going to share with us from his blog about life after the PhD. Welcome to the show, Jorge. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it deeply. I am so glad you're here and we get to share with listeners about your beautiful writing and your blog. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. So my name is Jorge. Um, I grew up in Connecticut right outside of Hartford in a small little affordable housing co-op. And I grew up with my mom and my dad and my grandmother and my uncle. Um, We lived in this, they still live there actually, it's this beautiful place. set of townhouse apartment co-ops that all form a circle around the shared courtyard. And so most of my formative memories were there in the community that raised me. Um, My family's from Puerto Rico. They migrated about a year before I was born. Um, So I'm very much part of that Connecticut diaspora, even though uh, it's a diaspora that isn't talked about as much as the New York diaspora or the Springfield diaspora. Um, But we're there and have distinct histories and identities. Um, Academically, I'm a historian. I am a historian of religion and social movements. I got my PhD from Union Theological Seminary, and there I studied the Young Lords, uh, a radical group of Puerto Ricans that occupied churches. And I was curious about what happens when people who are influenced by these social movements of the 60s and 70s, but don't necessarily identify with a religious tradition are using theological language to make meaning while advocating for socialism. Um, so that's kind of the research that I was doing in grad school. And now my work has moved more into fat studies and religious studies. So I was so happy to see the the interview with Virgil Tovar here on, on this podcast uh, a few weeks ago, which I believe was re, reposted from another podcast. But um, Yeah, I currently work at the intersections of administration and education. I am full-time the Associate Director for Strategic Programming at the Hispanic Summer Program. Um, We're working on a name change because we are a 501c3 nonprofit that does year-round programming for Latinx graduate students of religion and theology. And I'm also a part-time professor, so I'm visiting assistant professor of historical studies actually at my alma mater at Union. And there I teach courses in uh, history, fat studies, Latinx studies, and the intersections with religion. So I'm excited to be here and to be talking with you and with your listeners. I am so glad you're here. Can we go back to when you were heading off to college? You went to college out of state, is that right? That's right. Yeah, I went to college in the North Shore of Boston. Um, I actually have a somewhat interesting story because I went to an evangelical college. Um, At the time, I was connected to the evangelical church, but um, honestly, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what Christian colleges were. Um, I went because I felt that there in the admissions process and everything, uh, there was really a sense of community that I was drawn to. And additionally, I got full scholarship and was part of this cohort of 10 people of color from urban areas, um, the likes of which I'm still friends with today. And so it was a, an interesting experience for so many reasons. I mean, one reason was I'm a first-gen uh, college students. I'm the first one in my immediate family to go to college um, or to graduate with a four-year degree. And my family's from Puerto Rico. So in Puerto Rico, a lot of people don't really go away to college. Um, part of that is just a geographical reality. Uh, the island is only 30 miles by 100 miles. So there's only so far you can go. Um, so a lot of people live at home if they go to college and or they live 
in the area. So the idea of going two hours away to college was a, a very big deal for my family, as I imagine many um, first generation and many immigrant um, listeners might identify with. And being in an evangelical college was curious because, like I said, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't understand the history of these colleges. Um It was a very white institution, and I did not grow up in a very white area. (laughs) So it was all these factors that made college a a curious place for me. Um, But it was indeed, to answer your question, the North Shore of Boston, uh, about two hours away from home in Connecticut. It's difficult when you go away from home, particularly if people at home aren't really clear on what it is that you're doing at school. It sounds like you're really close to your family. How did you help them understand this new path you were on? Yeah, you know, it's funny. This past weekend, I was with my with my parents, and um, we are just talking because one of our one of my cousins is around the age where she's thinking about going to college, and. We were just talking um, about how when I told my parents that I wanted to go away for college and I wanted to study religion, of all things, my dad just had no idea what the hell that meant. And he was just he was so thrown off. You know, he was supportive because I think that the thing that I love about my parents is that even if they don't understand, like at the moment, um, they trust that I've thought something out because of the ways that they've poured into me and taught me to make decisions. And so it was complicated because my dad especially didn't want me to go away. And we spent a lot of time those first few years really navigating this new relationship between parents and child about what it meant to separate to become an adult, uh, to establish my own identity. But in terms of the actual academic study, I think that once my parents saw me applying my study of religion to policy work, so I did a lot of things with the National Head Start Association, um, that was stemming from the type of studies I did in college. once they saw me applying it to administrative work, I worked full time the entire time I was an undergrad and grad school. I worked full time, whether it be in admissions, I worked for a provost. Um, I worked for the organization I now work at. I actually wrote the multi-million dollar grant that created my promotion into the associate director role. So I've been doing full time administrative work the f- whole time I've been in school. And I think that allowed them to see that the questions of morals, ethics, history that I was learning about in my classes, I was actively applying to systems and policies I was creating or advocating for in my administrative work. And I think that that practical application, part of it is just who I am as a person, um, but part of it was also helping them come alongside me on the journey to see that it wasn't just reading books. It was seeing how these books help us analyze the world in new ways that allow us then to advocate for a better world. So they could see that you were the grown-up version of the Jorge they'd always known. That's right. It can be hard if you feel that you've lost your loved one to their new life. Absolutely. And you worked hard to make sure that that didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I was always very grounded in where I grew up, where I came from. And part of that is just the ways that my parents raised me as they themselves were navigating what it meant to be in a new in a new world, um, in a new society. You know, my parents, like I said, migrated a year before I was born. And so a lot of my childhood, I can see now as an adult, was them trying to figure out what it meant to establish roots in a place that the language spoken wasn't their primary language, in a place that culturally was so distinct for them, in a place that, and we don't think about this part often, 
but in a place that the climate was so different. I mean, my parents often talk about landing in the middle of a blizzard, like landing in Connecticut in the middle of a blizzard when they came. And just how jarring it must have been to leave your community behind and leave in 70 degrees in the sun and land in 12 degrees in a blizzard in a completely different place. Um, I think that in so many ways, they wanted me to, they wanted to be sure that no matter what I did in the world, I knew where I came from. And so when I was little, we went to Puerto Rico all the time. My first language is actually Spanish. They, they wanted me to learn Spanish first. Um, and culturally, they wanted to make sure that I knew where my roots came from. I think the things that they weren't expecting was that living in Connecticut and between, you know, the realities of Puerto Rican life and the realities of dominant U.S. life, uh, which is often a dominant white white cultural aspirations and assumptions, um, I started forming and really identifying with more of a diasporic identity, um, this in-between life that was really working class, poor, um, and that was situated between these cultures. That's why when I eventually got to my PhD, part of the reason I wanted to study the Young Lords, um, who, like I mentioned, were this radical group of Puerto Ricans modeled off the Black Panthers, who in the 1960s and 70s started doing a lot of community-based work while advocating for the freedom and decolonization of Puerto Rico and for a socialist society. Part of the reason I was so drawn to them as a movement was because they were a movement of diaspora. These were first and uh, or second generation Puerto Ricans who grew up in New York City, who had themselves just come from Puerto Rico, whose grandparents were the ones that migrated from Puerto Rico in the 20s. Um, and they themselves were coming of age in the 60s as the United States was you know, on fire in so many ways, or urban rebellions, or urban uprisings against police were happening every every other month, every other week in some some time periods. The civil rights movement was um, in full blown motion. Activists and leftists were being shot and killed by police and the FBI. So this is the moment that they're coming of age and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to advocate for the liberation of an island I didn't grow up in while simultaneously advocating for the care of a community that raised me here in diaspora. I think for me, studying the Young Lords was in so many ways an attempt to try and understand the community that raised me uh, in Connecticut. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I, I never forgot where I came from. And that has been so central to the ways that I've approached my academic life all throughout my time in the academy, adjacent to the academy, outside of the academy. It's been a through line in how I approach the world. For grad school, for uh, your master's degrees and your PhD, you were in New York? Yes. What what led you to New York instead of back to Connecticut? So I actually got... Uh, I, I knew when I was little, and I tell people this... Um, because I feel so complicated about it. But I, I remember when I was three years old, and my parents remember this very clearly, uh, we didn't have much in the house. So I would always play in cardboard boxes. So if you can imagine a 90, 1990s construction uh, of a little townhouse with carpet in some areas, tile in other areas, um, you know, beige-ish walls with those little heaters that go around the flo- floorboards. Um, I was in the living room in that little carpeted area playing inside a box. And I remember being three and emerging and saying that someday I was going to be Dr. Rodriguez and that I was going to go to Yale. Um, I have no idea where this came from at all. My parents remember the story fondly. Uh, and I, I really don't know where it came from for so many reasons because I didn't, I was three. I didn't know doctors. I didn't know Yale. So <laughs> it was a, a confusing declaration for a toddler. But in so many ways, it was what happened. I always knew that I wanted to go and pursue graduate studies and pursue a a PhD. And so 
I never went to Yale, uh, but I got accepted a few times. And one of the times was for grad school. So for my master's, I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Union and got uh, full rides at all three. But I decided to go to Union Theological Seminary instead of Harvard and Yale to pursue a master's really focused in liberation theologies um, for a few reasons. I think one of them was union just fit. So when I was in the, when I was doing prospective school uh, looking, when I was looking at grad programs, it was the junior, senior year of my time in college and undergrad. I actually often brought my parents with me to visit schools because I really respected their opinion and wanted to understand like what they saw in a school that I didn't see. Um, and when we went to visit Union in the prospective uh, student visit, I brought my parents. And to my surprise, the admissions team at Union gave my parents a hotel room, gave us all uh, Metro cards so we could get around. And they came with me on the tour. And I remember, <laughs> I remember very clearly, uh, we were walking around and there's, there was this fellowship hall that had uh, paintings of, I don't know if it was like former presidents or former board members or I don't know, but it was all white men. And there was this moment where the admissions uh, officer, who was all, herself a PhD student, um, she looked at the paintings, looked at my parents and I looked at the paintings again and then said, these are all the white men that we're trying to work against as we're trying to establish a new identity of justice in the world that's more inclusive. And I remember that experience so profoundly for two reasons. One, it was so funny to see an admissions counselor kind of sizing up the prospective student to figure out what, uh, whether or not this comment would throw them off or invite them in. Um, but the other part was that my dad just looks at me and he just says, damn, you, you can't not be a revolutionary wherever you go, huh? I guess you're going here, aren't you? <laughs> and it was this moment of just funniness because of the ways that union culturally just fit. I mean, of the three schools, it was... Um, the only one where an overwhelming number of faculty were faculty of color. Um, I remember I started meeting some of the faculty and one of them, Dr. Daisy Machado, um, ended up being my advisor and she ended up inviting me to pursue a PhD in history and be her last student um, before she retired, which I ended up doing. Um, and Union wasn't, isn't a perfect place. I don't and it's also not a place that's for everyone. I mean, I always say this uh, to people because sometimes I think we, I, we idealize institutions in a way that's unhelpful. But I think that we really need to instead ask about fit. Institutions have identities and not everyone fits in the identity of an institution. So I always want to ask students to consider where do you fit? Do you fit in the culture of a place? Do you feel in the types of academic pursuits that they are uh, engaging? Do you fit in the ethos, the methodologies of an institution? Um, and from those frameworks, for me, union was a fit. So functionally, I didn't go back to Connecticut because I turned down Yale. Um, and I also turned down Harvard and was getting out of Boston. So I ended up coming to New York City and I've stayed ever since. You started being interested in liberation theology, did that happen at the evangelical undergrad? Where, where did this shift happen? And when did you decide um, that you wanted to focus on the young lords? How did they get on your radar? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so, you know, as is true for many people, um, religious institutions were always central to my life growing up. Um, my mom is a Baptist from Puerto Rico, which is an important distinction uh, because Baptists in Puerto Rico are doing different things because of different histories. And my dad is a Catholic, and I later learned also Spiritist, which is a, a, a tradition that is more, um, it stems from France, uh, but also got mixed in and creolized with African diasporic religions in places like Puerto Rico and connects 
to metaphysical realms and things like that. And so it's a very common faith tradition among certain uh, populations on in Puerto Rico. So, you know, for me, all that to say that in my family, religious institutions, dreams, signs were always central to just the quotidian ways that we spoke with one another um, and that we engaged one another. So I grew up going to eventually uh, an American Baptist church, which for those who know the Christian traditions, the American Baptists are, are pretty progressive. Um, but after a while, we, my mom particularly wanted to go to a, a church that was Spanish speaking and that where she could engage the her understanding of the divine in the language that she grew up in. And so we started going to a Puerto Rican mission of a Southern Baptist church. Um, high school Jorge had no idea what any of that meant, but <laughs> I know that we went and within a year, I mean, we left that church because of the ways that women were not allowed to lead. And my mom being the staunch feminist that she is, she was just not about this at all. And so we started going to, I started going to the youth group of the white Southern Baptist church, primarily white Southern Baptist church. Now at the same time, I had a lot of questions about what I was being taught. I didn't really understand some of the, those who know Southern Baptists know that they're fairly conservative theologically as well as politically. And I didn't really understand a lot of what was happening. I mean, I was learning about evolution in school and being told that's a lie in church. I was learning, I was reading Marx in high school and being like, this makes so much sense uh, that, you know, corporations don't work without workers. Therefore, the workers should unite. I mean, that was just a very logical thing for me growing up poor, working class. Um, but then being given messages of more capitalist up, upward mobility in church. Um, so at the time, I had this mentor from the American Baptist Church, uh, this African-American woman, Reverend Elia Mahasan Blade, who kind of took me under her wing. And even as I was going to the White Southern Baptist Church, she would take me around um, to progressive Black churches um, in the Hartford area. So I remember I was a high schooler and she took me to meet Reverend Jeremiah Wright uh, in this church in, in Hartford and listen to him preach. And for those who uh, remember, Jeremiah Wright uh, was became controversial during Obama's election uh, because Obama has connections to him and Jeremiah Wright is a liberationist preacher, um, deeply steeped in the black liberationist tradition. And so through her, she also uh, started helping me think about what it would mean to study theology or study religion later in college. And I remember one night she took me to friendlies. There was a friendlies in my neighborhood, uh, where I always got the patty melt, which was my favorite uh, meal from Friendly's there. And she just came with this piece of paper that is still in my uh, childhood bedroom that just lists the different types of careers you can pursue if you go study religion or go study theology. And with that paper, she brought me a bag full of books. And the books were Gustavo Gutierrez's A Theology of Liberation, um, books by Clodovis Boff, by Mar uh, Marcel Theus Reed, all these authors who spoke about God being on the side of the oppressed, who spoke about having an economic theory that drives theological inquiry for the sake of the poor, uh, authors who spoke about um, God being queer, who spoke about God being a woman. And I remember being in my Southern Baptist church waiting for service to start, and reading these books and people coming up to me to tell me to be careful about the things I was reading. Um, and I didn't really understand why. I didn't understand what they were scared of. Um, because to me, what I was reading in these liberationist texts was something that just spoke to my experience of the world, that I understood what it was like to be poor. So it made sense that the divine would not want a system that necessitates poverty. Like, that was just logical to me. And so I went to college to study theology and really to study biblical studies because I figured that if I studied the Bible, which is the litmus test for Southern Baptists, then I could better refute some of the things that I was being told that didn't make sense to me. And along the way, what I 
realized was that all interpretations of the Bible, all interpretations of any text are situated within the frameworks and the political realities and the socioeconomic realities of the person reading it and of the movements they are influenced by. So that led me to study social theory, which eventually led me to liberation theology um, as a formal form of academic study, which uh, at an evangelical college was also controversial. So my pursuit of liberation theology really stemmed out of wanting to better understand my experience of the world. Um, Along the way, I left the evangelical church. I I no longer identified with it. Um, Whether or not I believed in God was a, a question that it wasn't irrelevant to me, but, you know, there was this moment I remember very distinctly where I had read, this is about my sophomore year in college, I had read this essay by Gustavo Gutierrez, who many credit as the the first articulator, first significant articulator of Latin American liberation theology. And he wrote that the question of European theologies is the question of the non-believer. So whether or not someone believes The question of liberation theology is the question of the non-person, whether or not someone is allowed to live. And that was such a profound moment to me um, because it really helped me see in the context of a white college that was also evangelical, that part of the social disjunctures I was feeling there and I was feeling in the church prior stemmed out of a cultural and social misalignment that manifests through theological inquiry. I was concerned with questions of the non-person, and I was being told I only had to question, I only had to care about belief. And that didn't make sense to me in a world that was on fire, in a world where poverty existed, in a world where people were dying. And so I went to pursue a master's in liberation theology to deepen my study, and along the way, um, through mentors, I I learned that history was a better fit for me. And I wanted to study social movements where people may or may not have believed, uh, believed in God, believed in not God, believed in whatever, um, or were just straight up atheists, but still used and engaged religious language, especially religious language tied to issues of justice, to make meaning in the world and advance more progressive values. So that's how I came about the Young Lords in a class, ironically, on eugenics um, and the challenges that they pushed against the state regarding sterilization of Puerto Rican women. And once I learned about them and was so pissed off that I spent 20 years of my life or 22 years of my life at that point never having having heard of this movement, I realized there is more to study here and more to excavate. So that's a long-winded answer, but I I feel like to really understand how I got here, I feel like it's important to understand the people who came alongside with me. Absolutely. So the information you first were exposed to about the Young Lords was embedded in a larger discussion of something else? Yeah, so I took a class my second year, my master's, on the history of eugenics. So eugenics was this um, scientific study advanced by liberals in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, where they really these individuals building off race science argued that the only way to progress society was if quote-unquote degenerates were not allowed to reproduce um, and quote-unquote the fit were allowed to reproduce in greater numbers. And so this was a, a terrible movement that had ramifications all over the place in terms of sterilizations in terms of institutionalization, specifically of people with disabilities, of black and brown folk. Um, But in the context of that class, I started learning about the terrible history of the sterilization of Puerto Rican women on the island uh, and in the U.S. diaspora. Uh, On the island, it was really connected to the experimentations around birth control that were Uh, perpetrated against Puerto Rican women, as well as forced sterilizations uh, because of the ways that the colonial uh, colonizers did not want them to reproduce and or saw them as expendable and thus able to um, 
able to be experimented upon, also around complex cultural questions around how messages of sterilization spread in Puerto Rico versus other places. But then also in the in the US and places like New York City, where it was not uncommon, this is true in the US South too, it was not uncommon for black and Puerto Rican women to go into the doctor's office to give birth. And in the process, the doctor would forcefully sterilize them without their knowing or without their consent. So one of the movements that really spoke about this history and questioned this history were the Young Lords. And as I was studying and writing about their um, push against forced sterilizations and the oppression of women in this regard, um, I really started realizing that their push against sterilization was situated within a much broader framework for how they viewed the world. So part of their work was about giving people agency to live life to the fullest, which in, which required education, which required housing, which required access to food, which required access to health care. So this reality of forced sterilization it wasn't just that it was wrong, although it was. It was that it was wrong because people should have autonomy over their bodies, because people should have access to free health care, because people should have access to free housing. So it was in that process I started realizing that, wait, there's this whole social movement that I have never heard of before in my life that is engaging the world and offering the world a completely different vision of how we could organize ourselves. And I feel like I need to learn more. So it was in that context of that class I learned about the Young Lords, and I went on to study them more later on. And in your immediate world, it's the end of the Obama administration, the tremendous backlash that has been going on throughout his presidency and the rise of the energy that led to the election of President Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that context is so central to, you know, we we ask questions based on where we are. And that context was so central to all the things I was studying. I mean, also, you know, in my first year at Union, this was the height of the the Black Lives Matters protests across the country. This was in 2016. It was right after the Ferguson uprising. And um you know, we were at Union, the students created what we called a love hub. So we took over a classroom in the basement of Union. We set up several students at Union were lawyers um, or continue to be lawyers. So we set up a lawyer helpline uh, in the in the basement uh, or in, yeah, in the first floor classroom um, and we would coordinate protests. We would go uh, and come alongside protests that are happening throughout the city against police brutality. Um, And that was my first experience at Union. I mean, that first semester in 2016, or sorry, in 2014, apologies, um, professors just canceled finals. It was this thing where every week, every night, we were out protesting alongside community organizations. We were out providing support. We were passing out water, um, pushing against... Uh, the abuses of police around black and brown and especially black communities. Um, So it was in that context, that politically charged context, that I then start learning about social movements that were responding to similar situations. I mean, the Young Lords were organizing, the New York Young Lords, because their original chapter was in Chicago, but the New York Young Lords were uh, organizing in 1969. In 1967, you had hundreds of uprisings across the country against police brutality in Detroit, in Newark, in Chicago, in L.A. Um, And so it was learning about the Young Lords in the context of these Black Lives Matters protests was really feeling the sense of we are in a similar moment. Um, And in so many ways, we were, because in 2016, then, in the in response to those protests and response to increased conversations about race in response to increased uh, conversations about gender 
and social location and poverty. And in the wake of a Black president, we get the rise of Trump, which is not dissimilar from the type of realities that happened in the 1970s and eventually in the 1980s with the election of Reagan, where you have progressive social movements that lead to a, a, a conservative backlash that imposes more capitalistic and, in certain cases, neo-fascist approaches to the world. So, yeah, to answer your question, like in, in the context of all of this is that I'm learning about the Young Lords. So the history wasn't abstract. It was like, I can understand why these people are organizing this way, because I see my own community rising up against the same damn issues. And the fight isn't over. We have to keep going. Absolutely. That's one of the hard parts of being a historian. Yes, it is. Is the more you understand the past, the more you understand the present, and the more you understand that none of these things are settled, none of these things are over. When people say, oh, I don't know where this came from or where that came from, the historians can raise their hands and say, well, I can tell you. Right. But it's a, it's a difficult feeling. It is. As well, to sit with that knowledge and know that we're right back there. Absolutely. And that's why when I teach, um, you know, all, all my courses, I really focus on method, on historical method, whether I'm teaching about um, history of religion from 1500 to present, which is my survey course, whether I'm teaching about Latinx religious activism, whether I'm teaching about um, the history of fatness and religion. Uh, in all these courses, I have assignments where I'm pushing students to really flesh out method. I want them to understand what does it mean to put a figure, an event, or a movement within a broader historical context to understand why what happened happened when it did. Because when we have the ability and the skill to do that, we can understand that things don't just rise up out of nothing, but they're actually situated within a broader story of oppression, of, of resistance, of systems that produce the same exact results through policies and laws and ideologies that manifest in people doing all sorts of things, bad, good, neutral as they negotiate a system. So even as we have different agents and different actors, we have the same exact responses, same exact things happening over and over again. And in a lot of ways, that's why I'm also an administrator. Because to me, I really, I really think we need to move beyond any analysis of the individual. Individuals only exist within context. And that context is situated within systems of power that guide and shape the conditions of possibility for that individual's choices. And so I always want to ask, why in the academy do we experience the same exact things? The isolationism, the struggle to graduate, the um, challenges once we graduate it, graduate to be in the market. Once we graduate, the overwhelming number of people who finish a dissertation and then experience um, bouts with depression or other forms of mental challenges, the, what is it, 40 to 50% of PhD students who experience uh, anxiety, depression, or other forms of mental illness while in the program, to me, if it's one or two people, okay, maybe they're idiosyncrasies. But if we have mass numbers of individuals experience the same realities, then we need to talk about systems and how those systems are situated in history. And that's part of, to me, what I want students to get uh, come out of my classes with. It's not enough to just know something happened in 1899. You need to have the tools to be able to excavate why it happened then, what people were responding to, and as a result, have an analysis that can connect to today to help us better understand how to push against those systems that continue to minoritize, continue to oppress, continue to kill, and also create new systems and new visions of the world that can be more liberative, more freeing, more inclusive. So to me, the question of history is not an abstract one. It's not an apolitical one. To be a historian or to merely have the skills of studying history is fundamentally to be asking questions of justice and about engaging the world in a different way. 
you use your social media feed to talk about a more humane pedagogy. And in your blog, you talk about uh, what you just alluded to, the real mental health toll of being a student. Um, One of your blog posts is about what happened after you defended your dissertation and what happened to your well-being and why that really blindsided you. You thought once you were done with school, you would feel various kinds of relief or that something was finished and yet you were having nightmares that you weren't done. You went through a lot. Do you want to share with listeners um, what happened and what inspired that blog post? Yeah. So I finished my dissertation in 2021. I I defended in April of that year. I started writing my dissertation in about December of 2020, I was doing research, doing our, sorry, December of 2019, I was doing research, archival research. And around February, uh, late January, early February of 2020, my partner got really sick. Um, She was having trouble breathing. She was having high fevers. Um, She was having trouble remembering things. And We took her to the doctor, we took her to the emergency room, and no one knew what was going on. They kept asking her, did you go to China? Did you travel outside of the States? And no one knew what was happening. No one had a way forward to treat her, but she was really damn sick. It was in that context that I was doing archival research. I remember I was at the archives at Drew University, and I get a call that my my partner's on the way to the hospital because her, her lungs just don't sound good. And so I just packed everything up and I must have driven damn near 90 miles per hour on the highway coming back to the city so I can meet her at the hospital. And they took an x-ray of her lungs and they just said it was fuzzy and they didn't have a good reading. So they just sent her home. Now, we later found out that through the antibody testing that she likely had COVID in February of 2020 when the world and the U S was so worried, uh, through his anti-Asian rhetoric of, of COVID coming from China, that it didn't consider that white people from Europe could bring COVID to places like New York city, which we later found out was the most likely case of how that spread. A few weeks later, uh, in March, um, We were fighting now that we knew that COVID was in New York and more so that that New York was the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic globally. Um, We were fighting to shut down the public schools. Um, I teach, my partner is a, a public school teacher. And so needless to say, the beginning of my archival research on a project I cared about started to seem so fucking insignificant in the world. But I also had one year left of funding. Um, I didn't have a job at the time, was, but would eventually start a new job uh, full-time through a grant we were awarded. And I just had to finish. I had to finish my degree so that I could work, so that we could be more stable because at the same exact time we had a a landlord situation where there were days because of a negligent landlord, which has now been categorized as one of the top 25 worst landlords in New York city. um, There were days where we didn't have water. There were days where we didn't have heat in the middle of winter. So we're in this perfect storm where like, I need to write a dissertation. My partner at that point, thank goodness, is recovering from COVID in March of 2020, but then we're fighting to shut down the schools. Then suddenly we're without water some days and our landlord is nowhere to be found, completely negligent as they had been the entire time. So we made the decision to move in with my in-laws in upstate New York. And that decision was really just pretty simple. We can deal with a pandemic. We can deal with a negligent landlord. We can deal with my partner recovering and her health. And we can deal with, uh, you know, trying to make enough money to pay rent. But we can't deal with all four at the same time. 
So we went uh, and moved in with my in-laws. And while there, you know, it was this thing like we all experience of dislocation, destabilization, trying not knowing what comes next. But in that process, I just kept writing my dissertation. I mean, the dissertation in a lot of ways became the one stable thing I had in a period of profound destabilization. Um, And that became the reality during the entire next two years. So I kept writing. We eventually moved back to the city. We eventually had to move again. We moved about four times during the the whole time I was uh, dissertating. Um, My partner got COVID two more times. um, And we now know that you know, so many in so many respects, that's a, a, a marker and a sign of long COVID. Uh, I got a job, and so I was working full time while also dissertating. So, in so many ways, it was a period. Those two years, twenty 2020 twenty and twenty one, were a period of profound stress, dislocation, destabilization, and the dissertation was just a place where I funneled all that. It was the one stable thing. So when I defended in April, I I didn't really feel anything. I just was numb. And for the month after, I was so tired. I slept in until 11, 12. I watched movies. Then I would go to bed and repeat. Um, I worked in those in-between times between movies and sleeping. Um, And I just, I wasn't well. Friends would talk to me about their dissertations and I would find myself having panic attacks. Um, I had friends who were still in the writing process and I just had to tell them, I I don't know why I can't talk to you about this. Um, And I was, as I was in therapy, I've always been in therapy for the last 10 years or so, my therapist asked me if I was maybe depressed and if maybe part of what was going on was that I got so used to the amount of adrenaline and hormones that came from the dissertation being this one thing that kept me driving in a world that otherwise was falling apart, that um, once it was done, my body had nowhere to put that adrenaline and those hormones. And so once that was named, I was able to start healing and really sitting with what am I being triggered by? What does this represent? What what does this mean? Why do I feel this way? And as I started doing so, I started writing about my experience and I was surprised to learn that an overwhelming number of people, including people who didn't write during a pandemic, experienced the same exact thing. The dissertation was a thing that they had to push through because their funding was running out. They had to push through because they needed a job because they had kids and they didn't have enough funding as a doctoral student to be able to uh, care for their families. They had to push through because they were um, partnered to someone who was getting a promotion and they had to finish so that their family could move. The dissertation became this thing they had to push through because the conditions of the doctoral program in general did not provide enough economic and social sustenance for them to be able to make it through in a more sustainable way. And as a result, once they finished, they had nowhere else to push that adrenaline, to push those hormones. And so they too became massively depressed. And I just started realizing this thing that at first started to feel like solidarity, oh, I've also been through that, started just pissing me off. Because if so many of us are experiencing the same damn thing, then what is happening in the academy that we are not creating conditions for people to thrive? And I think for me, again, thinking historically, I think about the ways that the academy wasn't built for folks like us. It wasn't built for people of color who 
uh, or poor working class folk who work full time while they're doing their studies. It wasn't built for people who were parents or single parents at that. It wasn't built for people with disabilities. It wasn't built for people who didn't have a trust fund to lean back on. And so it's unsurprising that now, especially in the context of a pandemic that just revealed the inequities that already exist in the system, that even more people would be falling through the cracks through their doctoral studies because of the ways the system was not built for us to thrive. And so that is part of my story. And I I try to write and speak about it honestly, in part because I'm not on the tenure track. And and even if I was, I would still write uh, write about this. But I say I'm not on the tenure track because I don't have to worry about peer-reviewed books uh, or peer-reviewed articles. So I have more time to write in this public scholarship mode. but even if I was on the tenure track, I would still be writing about this and talking about this because unless we talk about it, we won't actually have a collection of experiences we can learn from. And as a result, we won't have enough data to understand how the system works and how to blow it up and build a new system that's more caring and centered around the needs of the people. Through all of this, you've had your parents' wisdom to draw from one of your other blog posts is the wisdom of your parents and the few minutes we have left. Do you want to share some of what your mom and dad told you that was so sustaining for you? Sure. So I always tell folks that because I po- grew up uh, poor working class and primarily in a community of color and an affordable housing community in a co-op, um, I always felt that my sensibilities of the world didn't really match up with the white collar sensibilities that are so uh, prevalent in the academy. So part of this manifests in small ways, right? In the, the excesses that we often see in fancy dinners and donor events that, you know, the event itself or the plate itself maybe cost more than what my parents made when I was growing up. Um, but in other ways too, it manifests in this, in my discomfort with things like networking solely for the sake of extracting knowledge from someone about how you can move up in your career or in terms of thinking about your career as the most important thing or the only thing. Um, my parents always taught me as I was growing up, and they still <laughs> remind me today that a career is a thing, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is community. The most important thing is the people who sustain you along the way. Because the reality is that jobs come and go, um, positions come and go. And so your litmus test can't just be whether or not you got the fanciest title or highest paying job. We need to have an understanding of the world that's more expansive and more grounded in other things. And part of that comes from, you know, my dad, when uh, I was growing up, got fired a few times because of discriminatory practices. Um, My parents left an island, their home, their community, and came to a new place. Um, So my, the story of my family is one of being so profoundly aware of how you could lose anything and everything at any point in time. And yet the thing that was consistent, even as things were lost, was their community of care and concern. And so for me, my approach to the academy um, and my approach to career has always been grounded in this idea that the academy, the career, can't be the central thing that drives me. I always need to ask where, and I I use the language of vocation to talk about this because it's a a language I want to reclaim from capitalistic um, forms of theologizing. And I really talk about vocation as where do my gifts intersect with the needs of my community and care of care and concern in a sustainable way. And so what that means is I've made decisions in my life whether it be turning down Ivy Leagues or turning down six-figure jobs, because, and these decisions have been driven by this idea that those might be fancy, those might be great, those might be cushy, 
but that's not where the people I care about need me or and or the psychological toll of being in a place that feels so culturally distant would be too great for it to be sustainable. So for me then, the lessons that my family has taught me, that my parents have taught me, that have always stuck with me is that we can lose things at any point in time. So who are the people that care about you that you can really come alongside for those moments where everything else in the world is falling apart? And how does that community become the litmus test for the decisions you make in your career, the decisions you make in the types of things you publish, the decisions you make in the types of podcast appearances you do? Um, All of that is guided by this responsibility that stems from my family about being driven not by titles and money, though those are necessary and important for being able to sustain our livelihood in this capitalistic society, unfortunately. But undergirding all that is this question of how do my skills intersect with the needs of my community in a way that is culturally, socially, spiritually sustainable? That is what my parents taught me because I think that they knew very intimately that at any point in time they could lose everything. And as a result, we can't necessarily depend on things that are fleeting. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Man, that's such a good question. I don't want... Or let me let me rephrase. I think sometimes the academy and society teaches us that success looks one way. So in the academy, for example, we have this over-aggrandizement of the professorship or of the tenure-track professorship in particular, whereby if you don't attain that or if you don't want to attain that, you somehow have failed as an academic or failed as a scholar. I mean, I felt this in very interesting ways where I knew from the beginning of my PhD that I PhD program that I wanted to pursue an administrative job. And when I got the administrative job I wanted working with Latinx graduate students, um, people celebrated and were and were happy for me, absolutely. But then when I got a visiting professorship, that's when it was like, the world had opened and suddenly the visiting professorship was somehow more important than the administrative work I was doing, which I didn't understand, but it did reveal to me all the more the ways that professoring, being a professor has this over aggrandized imagination in our ideas of success and the academy. And I think for me growing up, poor and working class, and also with the sensibilities of the things I've studied, like the Young Lords, I know so deeply and intimately that a professor cannot do their work without a janitor who cleans the classroom, without the garbage and sanitation workers that pick up the trash from outside of the the school, without the grocery store clerk that puts the food on the shelves in the grocery store that the professor then goes and buys, without the truck driver that drives the food from the farms to the grocery store, without the farmer who picks the food from the ground, often in inhumane conditions, often in conditions that do not pay enough, often because they are poor and working class or black or brown or undocumented, and as a result seen as exploitable in this society. So for me, the professor lives within an ecosystem of people whose work is necessary and important for them to fucking survive. So for me, what I hope to do in this podcast, what I hope to do in my work, is really invite us to ask and interrogate the hierarchies that we've hierarchies of value that we've created through how we've constructed work, how we've constructed career, how we've organized a profession 
because none of us who are in the academy would be here without people like my parents who get up every fucking morning at five in the morning to go and work in a kitchen. My dad is a chef for a whole school system without my mom, who is a family advocate and would go to families' houses and make sure that they could get connected to social services. The work that I'm able to do as an administrator and as a professor is because working class folk across the country, across the fucking world, do things that allow my livelihood to be possible. And as a result, I need to live and write and profess in a way that is sensible to the broader ecology that I am connected to, that begins in the earth and the soil, that grows the food that people pick, that truck drivers drive, that grocery stores put grocery store clerks put on the shelves. I cannot do what I do without this broad ecosystem. And as a result, why the hell should me being a professor be more valued than the working class people who raised me? That is what I hope to get out of this podcast is one that we can really sit with questioning the hierarchies of value we've constructed in the academy. And two, that people who come from places like I do can know that their discomforts and their disjunctures are not because they are wrong, but because perhaps they have a perspective that the academy needs to hear. That, for me, is what I hope people get out of listening to this. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V. This is the Academic Life on New Books Network. Please. Join us again.